the gospel is unstoppable. No one and nothing stops the gospel message of Jesus. The gospel is unstoppable and the gospel will miraculously come out at unexpected times, in, in unexpected ways, often from an unexpected to an unexpected audience. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot and will not be stopped. I remember one day in particular where this came really alive in my personal life. So um, my friend Tom Howe, who's here today, is the director of uh, planting, church planting and replanting for Texas Baptist. So he is a, a church planter. I'm an evangelistic baseball camp planter, okay? Uh, the last 15 years, I've been involved in planting evangelistic baseball camps in Europe, specifically uh, in Germany. One of those years, we were going in advance to get baseball camp ready. And you see a picture here of myself and two other men. On the far left is my good friend, Dr. Tim Ralph from Flatonia Baptist Church here in Texas. We were going in advance. This is in the wintertime, obviously. We were teaching baseball in public schools with plastic balls and plastic bats and inviting those kids to come back in the summertime where we teach them baseball, but more importantly, they hear the gospel of Jesus, right? Well, this one particular day, we were not able to, uh, to be able to go into uh, and teach them baseball. So they asked, would you, would you mind just teaching, having conversational English with German kids, sixth graders? We said, of course. <clears throat> well, the tall man in the middle, the German man, is my best friend in Germany. His name is Jens Kunze. And Jens Kun came to me and he said, now, he's a teacher at the school and also a deacon at the church that we partner with. And he said, look, you cannot t talk about the gospel. Don't, don't talk about Jesus. Don't even tell them who you are and what you do. It could go really poorly for us. And I said, I get it. My wife's a school teacher. I understand that. So we go in and sit down to teach English, conversational English with German kids, sixth grade. So they start asking us questions, the typical things that we hear, right? Since they hear we're from Texas. So how many horses do you ride on the way to work in the morning, you know? Uh, how many rattlesnakes have you eaten today, you know, today? And then because Tim is really physically fit, this, this young lady turns to Tim and she says, uh, Tim, so I want to know, um, it looks like you take care of your, your body. Do you eat well? Do you exercise? And, and he says, yes. And he talks about his workout regimen. And this, this little boy in the back raises his hand and he says, uh, hey, Jonathan, uh, do you eat McDonald's every day? No, not every day. <laughs> so we went on, and this little girl, she, said, she says, uh, so what is your, um, um, what is the word? What is your job? What is your, and the teacher said, profession. She says, ah, profession. And Tim and I, our eyes get kind of big. We look at each other like, what are we going to say? And the teacher says, oh, they are, um, they are priests. And we said, Priest, yes, we are priests. That's close enough. You know, see the collar and all those things? That's close enough because the teacher knew that we were pastors. And so that, that punk boy raised his hand again and, and I ignored him. And, and, and then this little girl says, I'll never forget this. She said, in, in my, my Catholic church, we've been learning the catechism. Do you know the Lord's Prayer in English? 
And Tim and I looked at each other, and I smiled real big, and I said, yes. We know the Lord's Prayer in English. So we said it in English, and this little boy says, wait, what is this word, hallowed? I've never heard this word, hallowed. And you said, kingdom come. If God has a kingdom, does he have a throne? And so the teacher said, why don't you write the Lord's Prayer out in English on the board and explain the Lord's Prayer to us word by word? And so we did. Not only in first period, but in second period, and third period, and fourth period. And do you know why? Because the gospel is unstoppable. <laughs> and the gospel will come out at unexpected times and unexpected ways by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may say to yourself, now this idea, Jonathan, of the gospel being unstoppable, that sounds really good, but you don't know my crazy drunk uncle. Could the gospel penetrate his life? You might even say to yourself, Jonathan, that sounds great. The gospel's unstoppable, but you don't know my community. Maybe some of you in this moment would say, Jonathan, you don't know my church. Maybe some of you would be so honest to say, Jonathan, you don't know me. Because we pastors are real good at proclaiming the gospel for others, but it's hard for us to accept the grace of Jesus for ourselves. Today, here's what I want you to see. The gospel is unstoppable, not only in your life, the gospel is unstoppable in your ministry. Take your Bibles, please, and turn me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Already you're saying, wow, Acts, Acts chapter 2, okay, I know this passage, you do. And I'm hoping you'll see it maybe in some new ways. Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse number 1, let's see how on the first day of the church, the gospel was unstoppable. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all, notice that word, they were all together in one place. Pentecost is one of three pilgrimage festivals in Judaism. Now, the last time we see these disciples really is in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. The last place, the last location we know where they are is in the upper Room. And as we heard Rob White say yesterday, about 120 of them, and notice they are all together, they are all in prayer. Verse 2. <clears throat> and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled, notice, the entire house where they were sitting. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought about this? We, we believe that they are in the upper room, but when God brought the power, that the power wasn't just for the upper room, the power was sent to the whole house. When God sends his power, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes, there is always more power than what we need. There's always more power than what we can spend because it's not our power, it's, it's his power. So sometimes the attitude that we have or even our people may have is something like this. I would tell him about the gospel, but we could reach our neighborhood, but we could reach our town, but we feel called to the next generation, but now friends, there is a reason that the, the good Lord gave us just one, but your church gets just one but. And it comes from Acts chapter one, verse eight. But, but when the Holy Spirit comes on you, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be 
my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. There's no doubt about what's going to happen when the power of the Holy Spirit comes. We will be his voice. We will be his feet. We will be his hands. We will be his witnesses. You and your church need not fear as you look into the future, into 2030. We need not fear for God already has more power right here. We need not fear. Verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on, notice this, each one of them. We have this all, and now there's this each one. Verse 4. And they were all, look at that, all and then individual, and then all. Pay attention. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now listen, friends, there's no controversy here. Our God does not write anything controversial in his holy word. There's no controversy in this passage. There's only miraculous in this passage. What they are speaking, we'll see later on. What they're speaking is a clear language, as you know, and they are proclaiming, as we'll see in a few moments, the mighty works of God. They are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and what's the first thing that they do? They speak. They worship by speaking the mighty works of God. You see, there is no such thing as a silent disciple. The Bible would laugh at the idea of a silent disciple. And do you know why? Because the first act of the church is not silence, but the first act of the church is to proclaim the goodness and the power and the might of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior and who is the Lord. Not only is there no such thing as a silent disciple, there's also no such such thing as an unsent disciple. And these folks are about to go out into the street. Now, you'll hear people say about this silence, being unsent. You'll hear them say things like this. Well, my faith is private, but my faith is private. Well, if your faith is private, why is your sin so public? We don't have a private faith. All, individual, and all. This is the birth of the Holy Church. Now, Luke, in writing to Theophilus, he, he's had a spotlight. He's shining a spotlight on these disciples. Now he's going to change the spotlight over to the city. Verse number five. Now, there were dwelling, interesting word choice, Luke. There were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from notice. Every nation under heaven. Luke is telling Theophilus, look, every nation that I know, as a physician who's well-educated, every nation that I know is represented by Jews in Jerusalem in this day. Why is it that way? Well, historically speaking, there are two things happening behind the scenes in this passage. First of all, there's the diaspora. Israel, as you know, was was exiled beginning around 550 BC. And for many years, Jewish people have been returning to the motherland, especially to Jerusalem. Josephus, the historian, tells us that during Jesus' time, the return had reached its apex, had reached its climax. That's group number one. that are dwelling in Jerusalem. Group number two is because of Passover and Pentecost. 
Many Jews traveled for Passover and they would stay the 50 days. If they're going to spend that kind of money, they would stay for 50 more days for Pentecost. They were celebrating almost like Thanksgiving. It was a time of celebrating the harvest. And Pentecost was about commemorating the Ten Commandments and, and renewing the family covenant to the great commandments. So every nation under heaven is present. That's what Luke is telling Theophilus and telling us. At the apex of population, at the apex of gathering in Jerusalem, during a season of intense geographic and multicultural diversity, that's the moment that God unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit. In a time of intense geographic growth and an incredible multicultural diversity, is it just me? Or does that sound like the great state of Texas? He who has ears, let him hear. See, it's interesting though, because back in Acts 1.8, they were told, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. How would they take the gospel to the ends of the earth with this language barrier? I mean, in this moment, Claudia, who's now having to interpret her own name, for some of you, is translating this from English into Spanish. Can we thank her for a second? Just thank her for what she's doing. By the way, if you speak more than one language, you are brilliant. You're brilliant. Because I can't do it. I've tried. Don't you know those disciples went, Jerusalem, okay, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. How, what are we going to do? How are we going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth when we don't speak all the languages of the ends of the earth? You see, you've lost the significance of the story because you're so used to it. Many times on our way to Germany to those baseball camps, we'd stop in Berlin for a little while. And so there's this particular cafe I love to go in in Berlin. It's near downtown. And in the middle of the day, as people get out and about, as you sit there, and groups of people pass you every five to 10 seconds, the language changes. You hear English and another group, and then you hear German and then Italian. It's such an incredible international city. And, and, and then Spanish and, and, and Mandarin. It just, it constantly changes. That's what it was like in Jerusalem on that day. And let's just admit that language is a real true barrier, verse number six. And at this sound, what sound? Well, theologians have debated that. We're not gonna debate it. I'll just tell you what I think it is. And maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. wrong. I think the sound is them hearing these disciples proclaiming the goodness of God, the glory of God. And at this sound, this multitude came together and they were bewildered. Only time that, that word is used in the whole New Testament. They were bewildered. I bet they were because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So clearly the disciples left the upper room. It may have been a house. Some believe they were actually in the upper room in the temple. We're not sure. But because we know what Peter's about to deliver, the first sermon to the church, these folks are leaving the home by the power of the Holy Spirit and they are headed towards a place where the gospel is gonna be proclaimed. And along the way, they are speaking of the goodness and the glory of God. The disciples left the upper room and entered 
the streets, the disciples. Friends, discipleship is not complete until you move them out of your pews and onto the streets. The kingdom of God is not just about us sitting and soaking and listening and learning as important as that is on the first day of the church. The first thing that these disciples did was to speak the goodness of God and to go. Should we be surprised by that at all with God's great commandment? The Lord drew a crowd. The Lord knows how to draw a crowd. The Lord knows how to pull a multitude together. And I'm telling you, the Lord this day is drawing a multitude around your life. And the Lord this day is drawing a multitude around your church. (laughs) Yesterday, our director of evangelism for Texas Baptist, Leighton Flowers, got stuck in an elevator in his hotel for 45 minutes. Do you know why? Because the person, the other man who was in there with him needed to hear the gospel, and he did. The the Lord has this unique way of the gospel coming out at unexpected times in unexpected ways. From an unexpecting deliverer to an unexpecting audience. And the Lord this day is building, he is building a multitude around your life and around your church. One of my favorite stories from my life the past few years is about a sweet couple named Ryan and Dami. Uh, My wife and I, Heather, about five years ago, were buying a a new home, a completely new home in the greater Houston area. And uh, the companies we were buying the house from was called uh, Kehovnanium. And so we were there with our real estate agent, and we were negotiating with this young man named Ryan, who was a salesperson. We sat down and Ryan just happened to mention that in a few months he was going to be getting married, about six months. And we said, oh, that's great. So I told him who I am, what I do. I'm a pastor and, and how I, I gave him the speech of how important pre-marriage counseling is, you know. And so we talked about that and the fact that I've done that so many times in the past. So then we're negotiating, right? We're negotiating back and forth and I'm trying to get every dollar I can, you know, pulled off. And at one point I said, Ryan, if... If you'll just sell me the house for this amount, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in the marriage, pre-marriage counseling for free. And we laughed. We closed on the house, and three weeks later, Ryan called me. And he said, were you serious about the pre-marriage counseling? That sounds really great. I said, well, yeah. I said, um, I'd be honored to do that. I said, um, you know, I, I require 10 one-hour sessions. And he said, okay, which was a lie. I require three. But... I kind of already knew he wasn't a believer, right? So sometimes it is okay to lie, friends. I'm just saying that the right, hold it for the right time, the right place. So sure enough, Ryan says, um, well, I hope it's not a problem, but I'm not really a Christian. I went to church a few times when I was a kid, but I'm not a Christian. Is that going to be a problem? And, And I felt the smile beginning to grow across my face. That's not a problem for me at all, Ryan. That'd be, that'd be great. And he said, well, my fiance is from Africa. She's Nigerian. And he kind of hem-hawed around, but, and then he said, ultimately, you know, her family is Muslim and she grew up Muslim. So is that going to be okay still? And again, I felt that really big smile. And I said, Ryan, that's going to be fine. So sure enough, we got together <laughs> 10 times. I didn't use any testing. All I used was the teachings of Jesus. 
all I used was scripture and the teachings of Jesus. And you guessed it, we got close to the end about session number seven and we'd invest in so much time with one another. They said, you know, um, we'd really love for you to do our wedding, but we're not Christians. Would you still do our wedding? And I said, I would be honored. Now, I had a pastor friend pull me aside. And he's like, you, you can't marry them. They're unequally yoked. I said, are you kidding me? They're equally yoked in their lostness. I, I can totally marry them. And so on this beautiful day in Houston, Texas, I stood before two sides, right? This side over here was all white-skinned Americans. This side over here was all black-skinned Nigerians who had flown in and they heard the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And part of the end result was Dami's mother pulled me aside and she said, Jonathan, I had no ideas that the teachings of Jesus were so beautiful. Well, the relationship with Ryan and Dami continued because on their anniversary, Ryan calls me every year on their wedding anniversary just to say thanks for spending so much time with them. And so he called me one day, not on his anniversary, to show me, to tell me about this picture that, that um, Dami was expecting. And on the day that Dami was born, as God is my witness, he texted me this picture and he called me. Here's what he said. They were so impressed with the goodness and the kindness and the love of Jesus that they named their son Emmanuel. Friends, Pastor, I'm going to pause here and say, the reason I tell you this story is because you have to tell these same type stories in your church. You got to lead the way. You got to display the church that your church needs to become. They will follow your leadership if you will be more involved with ministry outside the walls and show them and tell them of the multitude that God is drawing around their lives. Verse number seven. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? They were bewildered. Well, why were they so bewildered? Because Galileans would have been bilingual, but not what's called a polyglot, someone who speaks three or more languages. So what they're saying is, how are these Galileans speaking these different uh, 15 different languages as we're about to see? Because they were bewildered because it wasn't a, a, a miracle. God had done something that man could not do. Friends, if you can explain what God is doing in your church, then it's not God who is doing it. If we can explain it, if, if, if it's easily explained, is God a part of it or is the power of the Holy Spirit actually even leading it? If we can explain it, no. Churches are meant to be supernatural. It is natural for churches to be supernatural. Verse number eight. And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own, look at this little word that Luke chose, in his own native tongue. These Jews from across the world were saying, we are hearing people speak in our original language. How, how beautiful is that? And so then what Luke does is he, he, he shows his audience the, these 15 distinct nationalities that are present. And those first readers, when they heard this, would have been thinking about the table of nations because this looks a lot like the table of nations, nations from Genesis 10. But Genesis 10 is followed by the Tower of Babel. 
would have been what was in their minds as they read this next part. Real fast, verse 9. Who's, who's in Jerusalem this day? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own, right, native tongues the mighty works of God. In our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Friends, the first recognizable act of the church was for the church to proclaim the mighty works of God to every tongue, to every tribe, and to every nation. Luke was foreshadowing because the first act of the church was to proclaim the mighty works of God to every tongue, tribe, and and to every nation. And today, the first act of the church as we move forward towards 2030 and 2050 and 2100 and 2500 and 3000, if God continues, the first act of the church is to proclaim the mighty works of God to every tongue, to every tribe, to every nation. Do you see how the first day of the church is the example of what the church is to be constantly doing? And we'll skip those verses about them being confused about the disciples being drunk because we're Baptists. We don't know anything about that. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, notice Peter's preaching, but the 11 disciples are standing with him. That's powerful. He lifted up his voice and addressed them in a common language, probably Greek, and he delivers the first sermon of the church. Now, you may say, Jonathan, that sounds all fine and good. You're telling me that the gospel is unstoppable, but have you never had church history? Have you, are you not familiar with this thing called church persecution? This is a a position for you to push back a little bit. Jonathan, I think you're confused that throughout history, haven't men and and nations and tyrants uh, done the the best that they can to stop the gospel message? Well, they have. Let me tell you just about about just a few. The Jewish orthodoxy of the first century from Stephen, the first martyr, to all 11 11 of the 12 disciples we know uh, gave their lives for Christ. It sounds like the gospel might be stoppable. The Roman Empire, the first to the fourth centuries, we have these, these, uh, these leaders, um, these tyrants like Nero and Domitian, right? Who dip the bodies, the live bodies of, of Christians in oil and, and light their bodies aflame so that they can see in their courtyards. The Persian Empire, the fourth century and the seventh century, uh, we have these, these tyrants like Emperor Shapur II who put a double tax on Christians in order to finance a war. They refused to pay it, and hundreds of thousands were martyred under Shapur II. We have the Vikings, the 8th through 11th century. They attacked churches in Europe across the the coastline. They killed pastors. They, They burned their libraries. It sounds like the gospel might be stoppable. Japan in the 17th century, 1,600, hear me, 1,600 Christians were banned from worshiping. They rebelled. And as a result, 100,000 people were publicly beheaded in a month. Why? Because if your second cousin was one of the 16 who rebelled, your entire family was wiped clean. The gospel sounds like it might be stoppable. 
The Soviet Union, the 20th century, atheism is a state religion. They destroyed thousands of churches. Pastors were murdered, tortured, sent to prison camps. 500,000 Christians were killed. In current day North Korea, it's estimated that 700,000 Christian families, not Christian, 700,000 Christian families are in labor camps. There are reports of Christians being run over by steamrollers, crucified on crosses over fires. And right here in our own state, not too many years ago, I was only 30 miles away the day that Sutherland Springs happened. An evil man killed 26 faithful worshipers. You might say, Pastor Jonathan, I think you're confused. Aren't things going to get worse? Doesn't Jesus predict as time goes on that men will come up with new ways to be evil towards one another? Yes. Doesn't he predict as time goes on more and more persecution? Yes. He says, if they hate me, they will hate you. If they kill me, they will kill you. Doesn't Jesus teach in Matthew 24 that the love of most people will grow cold? Yes, he does. Doesn't Jesus teach that many Christians will turn from the faith in Matthew 24? Yes, he does. But the verse I never hear people speak about is this one. Matthew chapter 24, verse number 14, the same passage says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed claimed throughout the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, our enemy may kill the messengers, but our enemy will never kill the message. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. The Pharisees couldn't stop the gospel. The Sadducees couldn't stop the gospel. The cat of nine tails couldn't stop the gospel. That cross, that cruel, cruel, old, rugged cross could not stop the gospel. The Roman Empire couldn't stop the gospel. Our sin, my sin, your sin couldn't stop the gospel. Death couldn't stop the gospel. Hell couldn't stop the gospel. The grave couldn't stop the gospel the tomb. Satan couldn't stop the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. No one and nothing has the power to stop the gospel. It is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. But while the gospel is unstoppable, we are evangelistically responsible. So you're probably saying by now, I thought this was supposed to be about 2030. It's about to be. I want to give you one reality and three action steps as we move towards 2030, around this truth that the gospel cannot and will not be stopped. Pastor, you feel a certain urgency about the gospel that your people just don't feel. Do you know why? Because you know that one day you will stand before him and the Bible says you will give a unique account for what you have done. The urgency that you feel is strong and real and right and righteous and holy. So as we move towards 2030, you have to lean into that because 
Well, we know from multiple researchers who all say the same thing, that pre-pandemic, 80 to 90% of churches in America were plateaued or declining in attendance. We've seen that all over the place. I've seen it from my seat in Texas Baptist and leading church health and growth and revitalization. According to LifeWay Research, you're about to hear from one of our LifeWay researchers in just a moment. In 2000, the average worship attendance in America was 137. Today, the average worship attendance is 65. 23 years, we've been cut in half. If the trends hold true by 2030, then that number would be 43 people in average worship attendance, which means that almost every church in America is going to be a candidate for church revitalization. So what do we do? Here's three action steps. You ready? Here's number one. Pastor, you have to embrace this reality. The days of non-believers showing up at your doorstep are over. They are finished. Those days are done. Treat it as such. And the irony is this. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are not waiting at the door for the lost to come knock on it. The first act of the church, as we've already heard, is that they left where they were. They went. Go and make disciples. Friends, incarnational evangelism is our only hope. Incarnational evangelism, that we get out of our pews, out of our rows, out of our circles, out of our homes, and onto the streets with this reality. Friends, you cannot outmission the Messiah. You cannot outmission the Messiah. People ask me all the time, what happened in this church revitalization story? A dollar and six cents and 25 people to a congregation of 350, a $700,000 budget and all new buildings, 200 and plus people baptized. Here's what we did. We did mission work ad nauseum from day number one. Pastor today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. You need to define, hear me, write this down. You need to define your Jerusalem for your church, your Judea, your Samaria, your ends of the earth. You start praying and sending people to all four of those places. And this is my my belief, that if you will focus on growing God's kingdom, then God will grow your church. Don't get it backwards. Don't you focus on growing God's church because of an Americanized sense of success is larger and bigger. No, 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 no. You focus on growing the kingdom of God and you trust God if he wills it to grow your church. But you define today. You begin today. You figure out who the stakeholders are today for you to sit down with the people in your church and you define your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, your ends of the earth, and you go and you send people and have them come back and tell the stories of what God did in their lives and in others. I'm telling you, this is the secret sauce to growing the kingdom of God in your people's hearts. Thing number two, that's a hard pill to swallow, so just buckle up. The ineffective church traditions, events, and programs in your church must end as soon as possible. As soon as possible. I could spend an hour here, but I don't have that much time. 
here's the reality. You're not gonna like this either. Just hear me out. In a plateaued or declining church, if that describes your church, up to 70% of the current events, programs, and ministries need to be removed. Let me tell you why. Because in most churches, about 70 to 90% of the programs and events and ministries are inward focused. Now, don't you go back today and say, Texas Baptist told me to cancel all these ministries. That is not what you heard today. But you, what, what I'm telling you is you have to begin that process of evaluating, is this ministry making a disciple? You have to ask of every ministry, every program, every structure in your church needs to be asked, is this structure, this program, this ministry, this event, is it moving the gospel message forward? And what will happen is the people in your church who run those ministries will say, well, of course they are. And you need to say, well, tell me legitimately how many baptisms have been produced. That's your litmus test. If you want more about that, you come see me. Church, I can summarize church health, growth, and revitalization in one word, and that's the word new. If churches are going to grow again, you basically have to create a new church inside the church that you already have. Church revitalization can be summarized in one word, new. It's new worship services, new Bible studies, new, uh, new, uh, new tactics, uh, new target groups, new strategies. It is consumed with the word new. Church revitalization is about your church basically starting over. And when you begin to talk about that, here's what you will hear. We've never done it that way before, right? You have to reject that thinking. You have to reject, pastor, we've never done it that way before is unbiblical, unchristian, and unholy. So why would you say that? The reason I would say that is because the Bible is filled with, with new. The Bible is filled with new. In fact, have you ever thought of it this way? Now, I'm not suggesting this is your sermon for tomorrow. Just hear me out. When your church says, we've never done it that way before, your response could be this. Well, a perfect sinless savior had never died on a cruel cross for the forgiveness of your sins either. That is new. That was new. As Carlos is walking down here, Pastor Carlos, if God hadn't done something new by dying on the cross, you would be on your way to hell. It was new, right? And the Bible has all these stories of all these things that happened that were, that were new. This man was told, hey, the dew that's on the ground is going to fall from the sky. You better build a boat. That was totally new. And it's never happened, it's never happened since. It was historical. Right? This... This man was told, I know that you and your wife are 100 years old, but from your line is going to come, right? So he says, Abram, go, go be with your wife, and, and a child is born. That happened, that was new, and it's never happened since. Anyone in the room know of someone who was more than 100 and gave birth? I didn't think so. That was new, right? No one had ever stretched their arms out over the sea before and an entire nation walked through on dry ground. That was new. Here's a great military strategy. Let's walk around the walls of this city seven times. 
That's a great military. That was new. Daniel being dropped in a lion's den and not consumed. Three and then four people walking around in a fiery furnace. That was new, never happened since, right? A virgin will give birth. What? That's new. Disciples are gonna speak languages from across the world. The Bible is filled with new. And the Bible even tells us, God says, behold, I am doing something new. When a church says, we've never done it that way before, they are completely ignoring the entire biblical record because God loves evidently to do that which is new. Here's the third takeaway. Pastor, if you don't get this right, you've got to get this right. Your church is not a competition against another church in your community. That's not what this is. And as long as that is your mindset, well, they have bigger buildings and nicer buildings and they have a, a worship team and they have a full-time this. and a, No, no, no. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That is not where your competition lies. Your church is not a competition against another church in your community. Your church is a competition against the darkness. That's your competition. And as long as you were trying to out-church another church, I don't believe God's gonna move uniquely the way that he wants to in yours. Your church is a competition against dark places and dark spaces. I wanna give you a low-hanging fruit in a ministry that we have at Texas Baptist that's new called PAVE. New paths for church growth. And so, Pastor, here's a takeaway for you to find dark places. For, to reach people no one else is reaching, you must do things that no one else is doing. To reach people no one else is reaching, you must do things that no one else is doing. So let me suggest to you for just about three minutes what's what we call the seven interview report. Pastor, you need to take a picture of this. Feel, feel free. You need to go out, Pastor, and com- complete face-to-face interviews with seven civic or community leaders in your community, asking them all the same two questions. Question number one, from your, from your unique perspective as the mayor, from your unique perspective as a principal, from your unique perspective as an ER doctor, what hidden issues or problems exist in our community? ER doctor, what are things that you see that we don't see? Principal, what are things that you see that we don't see? What's hidden in our community? And the second question is, how could our church address that? What could our church do about it? Now, just two questions. Conduct them face-to-face because you're building relationships with people who are new to you. And here's who's, who we suggest. The next slide says this. The left side of the screen, you have to do these. You have to ask a pediatrician. Why? Because a pediatrician is going to know things like what's happening behind the scenes in families. They're going to know about malnourishment. They're going to know about abuse. You have to ask two teachers. I think it's evident my wife's a teacher. I don't need to tell you why we need to ask teachers. You need to ask a police officer, an EMT, or a firefighter because they know the intersections that are dark. My middle son, Blake, who was 6'4", 275 pounds of solid muscle, and he is also enrolled in professional wrestling school. I don't know. 
but he spends his days walking up to the fourth floor and picking up a 200-pound lady or man or whoever who can't get down there. He carries them down the steps to the glory of God, right? Here's what he told me when I asked him this question. He said, Dad, here's why this question is good. Because poverty has a smell. He said, Dad, I can walk into the home and before I see a patient, I know if they're in poverty or not. You ask a firefighter, an EMT police officer. You ask a counselor or a social worker to understand what's happening in the arena of mental health in your area. If you'll click one more time, the right side of the screen will tell you some other options. If you'd click it once more, and we should see the other side. There you go. Give you some other options of who to ask. Someone in school administration, an ER doctor, a barber, a beautician, or a tattoo artist. Why? Because people talk to them, right? Your, your physician, ask another pastor. We'd put in red the people who, you know, only as a last resort because they tend to paint a pretty rosy picture, okay? But I'm telling you, what has happened with our churches that have practiced a seven-interview report has been unbelievable. The First Baptist Church of Gulfway, their pastor went to... Um, uh, someone in the, the city manager and asked these two questions. The city manager said, the only thing that we do for our new citizens is send them a bill. Welcome to Gulf Wait, here's your bill. And he said, could somehow the church welcome people who are new into town? He said, well, yeah, well, how would we do that? The city manager said, oh, well, I'm gonna send you by email at the beginning of the month the names, addresses, phone number, and, and email of all of our new residents. Will you go by and greet them and tell them, hello, welcome to town. The First Baptist Church of Gulfway is now the welcome committee, if you will, for the city of Gulfway. And guess what has happened? All of a sudden, there's all these new people. I could tell you story after story about how this has worked. Practice the seven interviews report. And let me tell you why it's important. I'll close with this. We're talking in this section about your church is a competition against the darkness. When my parents, long before I was born in 1963, when my parents were 17 and 18 years old, they weren't married. My mom was pregnant. They fled Brownwood, Texas, where they grew up and moved to Grapevine, Texas because they didn't, no one knew them there. My parents lived in filth and squalor and in poverty. My dad tells me that the mobile home that they rented, they could not walk in the living room through the middle of the room because they knew it would cave in. They had to walk on the outside perimeter of the room so it wouldn't cave in. And this picture of this pastor named L.E. Holmes Pastor L. Holmes pastored a small church his entire career of less than 50 people in Grapevine, Texas. Pastor Holmes heard about my parents. He knew that they weren't married. He knew my mom was pregnant. And he broke all the church social norms of the day when he went and knocked on their door and invited them to come to church. I always get emotional in this part. I don't apologize for it. I'll do the best that I can. Please don't be offended by a word that I'm about to use. They went to church. And my mom, being pregnant at seven months with a bastard child, what would have been called in that day in her belly, she received Christ and was baptized in the name of the Father 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. My dad didn't know what to do. He wasn't mad. He just didn't know how to respond. So in August, in Texas, in August, my dad went to Goodwill and bought a tent for 50 cents. It was almost all the money that he had. And he went and pitched a tent in the woods near a city park so no one would see him because he didn't want to live under the same roof as my mom because he didn't want to disrupt whatever God was doing in her life. But just three days before my brother was born, my dad placed his faith in Christ and was baptized. My brother was born. Pastor Holmes married them and they moved back in together. Let me tell you why that's so important. Because my two grandfathers both died when they were 60. I never met one of them. One drank himself to death. One smoked himself to death. The man who smoked himself to death died in a prison in California as a rapist and a child molester. That could have been my life. But Pastor Ellie Holmes went into the dark places. He went into the dark spaces. He did what was not normal in church for that day. And because of that, I grew up in a Christian home. My two brothers know Christ. My three sons know Christ. And my new grandson, Nash, who was two years old, will grow up in a Christian home and Christian family. Pastor, you have to. You have to lead your church as we move towards 2030. You have to lead them into dark places. Here's the reason. Because the role of your church isn't merely to make an impact. I'm going to have a McDonald's for lunch today. It's going to make a big impact. The role of your church isn't just to make an impact. The role of your church isn't merely to make a difference. Listen, the YMCA can make a difference. AT&T will make a difference sometime in the next few weeks. AT&T is going to be some tragedy. They're going to say, text this number and you'll send us $10 to give to some organization. They can make a difference. No, pastor, the role of your church is to make history. That's the role of your church is to do something by the power of the Holy Spirit that has never been done before. Do you know why? Because the gospel message of Jesus Christ is unstoppable and Jesus Christ is the head and leader of your church. Go and make history with the gospel message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may it be true. May your spirit rain down in unique and unprecedented ways in all of these churches for your glory, for your glory alone. And Father, we proclaim in the powerful name of Jesus that we know that Satan hates when churches move forward. And so Father, we speak against him in Jesus' name and we tell him that we know his eternal state. His eternal state will not be in heaven and glory with us and with you. His eternal state is already secure just like ours is. So Father, we proclaim today that you will bind the workings of Satan away from these churches as they move forward towards 2030, believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Lord, I pray you would send them to dark places and dark spaces and God resurrect lives, resurrect people, resurrect families, resurrect generations, resurrect churches and God, if you'd be so good to even resurrect communities because your gospel cannot and will not be stopped in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.